Dr. Mark McDonald has a practice in Los Angeles and a frequent media guest. He is board certified in both child and adolescent and adult psychiatry. Mark specialises in the evaluation and treatment of young people with mental illness and over the past decade of postgraduate training has supervised and taught medical students, residents and fellows in multiple disciplines of medicine, psychiatry and therapy. Ongoing hysteria and a climate of fear promoted by government and mainstream media have had a devastating impact on many of us, which may be difficult to reverse even in the medium term. Dr. McDonald, thanks very much for joining us once again. Thank you for having me back. You've written recently about the next phase of this pandemic, that is the rise of sadism. Can you tell us what you mean by this? This is a topic that I addressed briefly in my recent book, United States of Fear, but that I've been writing about more extensively since the publication several weeks ago. This, I believe, is a really sick and nefarious outcome of what I have been talking about for the last year and a half, which is the pandemic of fear. Uh, Fear has been really the driving force behind this pandemic from the beginning. It is what has erased rational thought and enabled government and media and large corporations to band together to suppress civil liberties and basic human rights. More recently, though, what I've seen emerge from this is something even sicker, which is sadism. Sadism is a delight or pleasure or enjoyment that is taken through the infliction of suffering or humiliation on other people. I've personally experienced this, and I have heard incidents of sadism occur to both friends, family, and other public figures more recently uh, here in Los Angeles, California, where I work, and I find it very disturbing. Tell us about your your experience with um, uh, a group of sadistic behaviors. Well, my personal experience that's the most notable is the banning of my ability to fly on Delta Airlines. I was on a flight from Atlanta to Moline. Moline is a really small town in Iowa. It was a short flight, about 40 minutes. And despite the brevity of the flight and the somewhat casual nature of the pond hopping little plane and a trip that I was taking, I encountered a flight attendant who appeared to be devoted entirely to policing masks. That was really his only function on the plane. And he took notice of me right away because I wasn't wearing the traditional mask, the surgical blue mask, but rather a bandana, uh, which has been equated, probably rightly so, with uh, some resistance or uh, discontent with mask mandates here in the United States. Uh, It displays a bit of freedom and a little bit of uh, rebelliousness. So he took note of that when I got on the plane, and unbeknownst to me, after I began drinking from a bottle of water, without the bandana on, of course, he timed me. And he came up to me a few minutes into the flight, and he said, sir, you have been drinking water for over six minutes. I was stunned. (laughs) Who would time someone drinking water? Isn't that nuts? Well, probably, but I mean, maybe you were thirsty. I mean, actually, if you drank... Oh, I was. But if you drank I any... I was terribly thirsty. <laughs> but if you drank any faster, you'd probably drown. 
<laughs> well, I had been running through the Atlanta terminal for the transfer since That's I originated my flight in L.A. It was a nightmare. Uh, that is the hub of Delta Airlines, and it was at least one mile of walking. Uh, I went on the moving carpet, so I was able to short that distance somewhat. But I only had about 20 or 30 minutes from the gate to the gate. And it was a very, very long walk. I was sweating. I was tired. I was dehydrated. I was thirsty. So I, I actually wasn't playing games. I really did uh, need to drink that water. And I didn't want to gulp it down and, she said, drown. So I drank it slowly. Uh, I was calming down, trying to relax. And as I said, a few minutes into the flight, he came over and told me I'd been drinking the water for more than six minutes. And uh, I had a little beef jerky in my other hand. And uh, he scowled at me and told me to put the food away. And I said, well, I'm, I'm eating, I'm drinking. What, what am I violating? He couldn't answer the question. But he did come over with a laminated placard that said final warning a few minutes after that. I said, final warning for what? And he said, lifetime ban on Delta. I said, wow, because I'm eating and drinking, following the rules. He said, oh, it's, it's too much. It's too long. You don't have the right to do that. And I said, well, I guess this is my final warning. He said, no, it's not. I just have to give this to you. I've already decided that I'm going to have you banned from the flight on landing. I'm going to file a report. I said, oh, well, I guess in that case, I might as well just keep eating and drinking the rest of the flight. He didn't like that. But when I got off the flight, I was met at the gate by the station agent who took a report from me, interviewed him as well, and then ultimately forwarded to the corporate headquarters, which resulted in an email letter to me a few weeks later saying I was banned for life. What concerned me, though, about this, and this gets back to your question about sadism, is the the reaction of both the, uh, the, the, the people on the plane, the other passengers, and also the flight attendant who initiated this ban. I didn't get the impression that the flight attendant was scared or anxious or concerned or really even trying to fulfill his obligations for what they call safety or mask mandates. He was actually taking pleasure in getting me booted off of Delta. He admitted to me during the flight, after this all went down, that he was a former police officer and that he had then switched his career to flight attendant. And I said, so you went from policing crimes to policing masks. Well, he didn't like that either. So we, we, we kind of had a bit of a, a back and forth. I was certainly a bit antagonistic. I, I was not compliant with him after he became a jerk to me. But I could tell that he was enjoying this. He was taking pleasure in what he felt was the humiliation or embarrassment that I was suffering. Now, I didn't feel either. Uh, I, I actually was just annoyed and somewhat perplexed by it. But I think he really wanted to go out of his way to make me feel pain, to make me suffer. Mm. And this is what I see happening all over Los Angeles, all over my country in the United States. People have moved from expressing anxiety and fear to actually taking pleasure in humiliating and harming other people. I heard a interview of the famed or infamous philosopher slash leftist Noam Chomsky recently, who was asked, so what do we do with people who don't want to take the vaccines? And he said, well, they made their choice. Well, what do you mean they made their choice was the follow-up question. I mean, how, how will they be able to eat if they can't go to grocery stores? He said, well, that's their problem. They're going to have to find their own way to get food. He seemed to enjoy the knowledge, the guarantee that people who don't get vaccines may actually starve to death, 
just like a woman out in the Middle Ages who committed adultery was shipped off to the forest in a wheelbarrow, left to rot to be eaten by wild beasts or starved to death, the townspeople actually took pleasure in this sort of punishment. That is what I mean by sadism. You know, Dennis Prager, our local radio talk show host here in the United States that's mm -hmm. syndicated across the country, he received treatment for an infection with the Wuhan virus, was off the air for a few days, recovered. But during his absence, hundreds and hundreds of comments came through his Twitter feed and even media were posting articles about him saying, this anti-vaxxer, he's not anti-vax by the way, he just said, I don't want to take the vaccine, anyone else can. This anti-vaxxer, he should die. He deserves to die. In fact, if he needs to go to the hospital, they shouldn't let him in. This is amazing. Did I mean, you? people, as I know, who are shot mm. while attacking police officers, criminals, are never denied care in a hospital. Criminals, child molesters, never denied care. But a man who says, I choose personally to not get a vaccine, deserves to die. There's something sadistic about this. We have gone from fear and anxiety to sadism. It is sick. I would even say borderline evil. Is this, though, this, you know, it's, is this maybe induced by psychological warfare that's waged by government, or is it something else? Do you think we have it in us that... Um, yeah, the uh, the bullying thing or the might thing, you know, my chest has got more hairs on it than yours, as I said to the girl next door, or, or what? Do you mean, do you, do you, what, what actually is it? Is it this primal thing that we have or is it just the immense pressure from, from government, you know, that we're all going to die, then they have this, this, uh, this saviour, which is, Dr. Fauci, Mother Therese Fauci, and uh, she's going to save us all with this vaccine. And we must take the vaccine, otherwise um, we don't enjoy our permissions anymore because freedom should never be negotiable. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's a combination of two things. One is the inherent primal, I wouldn't call it evil, but perhaps depraved nature of human beings, uh, which is to wage war, violence. Um, this is the human condition. And we are responsible for pushing back against that, for overcoming it, for civilizing ourselves. And, and we largely accomplish this in a society where bad behavior is punished and good behavior is rewarded. Uh, it tends to work pretty well in modern society. Unfortunately, the second element, which is the, the one that we really need is the restraint, is now gone. And in its place, we've actually inverted the inducements for good behavior and bad behavior. Rather than embarrassing, shaming, humiliating, or arresting people who harm others, we are actually rewarding people for cruel acts. When you yell at an old lady who's hobbling outside a grocery store with her bag and not wearing a mask, yelling, screaming, pushing, insulting her, when you reward that kind of behavior with applause, when you tell people that they're acting virtuously by acting cruelly, you bring out that inherent quality, that, that nature of people, which is ugly, and you amplify it. I don't think people have become evil. I think that the inherent ugliness and cruelty that's present in every human being, that potentiality, 
is being activated, is being inflated, is being fueled, is being enhanced by government, by media, by large corporations, and by really our social structure. It's a, it's a sickness of society that has come to really take away all of the barriers, obstacles, the long-held uh, limitations of just sort of acting as we want to. And I think that one of the outcomes of that is the rise, uh, is the emergence of sadism. What do you think the role of media it, I mean, I'm a major critic of the of mainstream media and even some of the fringe media. Uh, they amplify all the worst things, create the fear and the lies. And um, people, you know, they look at headlines, listen to a quick byline, and that's to them the truth. So what do you think their role is? Do you think it's, um, I mean, I would probably put it right up there with government and big pharma and the health authorities. Well, I agree. Media traditionally, especially journalism, uh, has had the role of reporting information, mm. informing. That is really what media is about, but no longer. Mm. Media is no longer about informing. Media is about not just putting out one's opinion or expressing a view, but actually guiding and managing behavior through emotional tools. Some of the top rated or certainly most well-known media personalities here in the United States, like Chris Cuomo and Don Lemon and Joy Reid, uh, all disgusting individuals, disgusting human beings, but are known as media figures, have repeatedly, dozens and dozens of times in the last 18 months, made comments toward those who they differ with, usually politically, who happen to say fall into misfortune a conservative who doesn't get a vaccine gets sick, or a conservative whose child decides to uh, leave a government school to receive in-home instruction and is maimed by a dog. These people don't report that information neutrally. They say things like, good, I hope that that person dies. He deserves it. If more people were like that, we would wind up with a worse society. These people need to be imprisoned. These people need to die. The, the type of inflammatory rhetoric that I've mm. never seen from media in the past. And it's not just once or twice. It's, it's daily. It's happening every single day. Mm. It happened in the uh, Rittenhouse trial, which was the trial that just ended in Waukesha, Wisconsin, about a week ago, where a white young man, I think 17 or 18 years old, was attacked by a child molester, a murderer, and a rapist in succession and shot them and killed two or three people and maimed one. And he was called a racist. He was called a, a delinquent. Uh, he was accosted and charged with multiple homicides, ultimately acquitted. And yet the media personalities blamed him, never, never once mentioning what actually led up to the shootings or the prior convictions, robberies, homicides, and rapes of the three people that he shot. Mm. They have an agenda, and the agenda is to gin up anger and hatred and fear and to support true evil. Mm. They, they really do support attacks on people that they disagree with. And I think that that's encouraged cruelty. I think that's encouraged uh, retaliation, retribution, revenge. Uh, we've really... Uh, I think through the media's involvement, direct involvement, 
at least in the United States, we have really reverted into a very tribal society, a society that has in-groups and out-groups, almost like a gang warfare from the 80s and 90s in Los Angeles. You wear red, I wear blue. Well, we have this, the wrong colors. You have the wrong colors, so I get to shoot you. And then I get, not certainly from society, but from the group that you belong to, you get cred. You get street cred. Uh, you get an elevation in the hierarchy of the gang. Um, we really have turned into a series of tribes or gangs here in the United States, uh, and it's not pretty, and I do believe that media is, is highly responsible for it. I think the uh, the earlier we see the backs of um, Chris Cuomo is gone, but the, uh, the Don Limons, he needs to go. To. What about the effect of this 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 sadism, this hatred, this hype, this, this fear-mongering. What about this on, on children? Oh my goodness, it's, it's a travesty. I've seen children deteriorate more than any other group uh, as a child psychiatrist. Uh, I've had children be put into inpatient units. I've had children die from drug overdoses. Uh, they're cutting, they're wetting their beds. Uh, they can't separate from their mothers. Now, a lot of this has to do with the separation from their friends, school closures, mask mandates, pressure from vaccines and all of that. But also, in addition to that, a really sick rising tide of sadism among children. Just this week, I saw two, three, maybe four children who told me that when they go to school, and these are kids that don't wear masks because they're not required to, say, outdoors, for example, when they go to school and they don't wear their masks, other children will actually insult them, taunt them, bully them, laugh. And I don't mean just out of fear, out of anxiety, out of being different. These kids enjoy it. They love to humiliate and abuse these children. One of them is actually autistic. Mm. And not only that, this is, where, this is where it gets really sick. It's not only that, because children can be cruel. I, I know that. But the teachers allow it. The teachers say nothing. The teachers sometimes even encourage it. This is something that's new to me. I have never seen this before, where adults are allowing and encouraging children to act cruelly upon other children, simply because the children that are expressing the cruelty happen to be behaving in line with government mandates for vaccines and masks. Mm. This is an alignment of forces, government, media, schools, teachers, and bullies against the other and if it doesn't stop if people don't step back and actually say wow our children are actually being victimized by our negligence as parents as adults as teachers we're going to wind up with a true victim class of children who are not going to be able to integrate into society and you know what for all that the left and the liberals love to talk about bullies and disadvantaged students and how that leads to school shootings well this is what leads to school shootings Treating children like this and countenancing cruelty and marginalizing them. And guess what? They come back later with a gun. They come back later with a, a car that they drive through the schoolyard. And then the liberals and the left, they say, I have no idea what happened. He obviously did it because he was a conservative. <laughs> no, he didn't. He did it because you allowed him to suffer under the indignity of a sadistic, sick, evil system that encourages cruelty. You deal with uh, the minds of, of all ages, just where do you, I mean, off script here, where do you see all this heading? I mean, how do you, how do you convince someone that says Dr. Fauci is Mother Therese and St. Christopher rolled up in one, 
Uh, we, speaking of that, we even have the Catholic Church from the Pope down. You know, they're perpetrating these lies. So how do you convince, if there's this massive, as Piers Robinson, Robinson would say, there's this it's propaganda on steroids, makes the war on terror propaganda look very mild indeed. How do we convince, or is it possible to convince those that believe the current narrative to open their minds and look at alternatives? Well, my answer may not be very appealing to people, and it's somewhat dark, and it's this. There is a large percentage of the population that is neither informed nor rational nor curious, meaning that they're closed. And nothing that you can say or do is going to change their mind or even encourage them to begin questioning. I think that the only way that that group of people, and it's a large group, certainly in this country and, and most likely in others in Australia and New Zealand, probably even greater, the only way that these people are going to wake up and realize what's actually happening, not the metaverse virtual reality that they're living in Mark Zuckerberg's new uh, meta zone, but actual real life, the, the real world out there is being hit over the face with a frying pan of tragedy. And that might include the death of their own child. Mm. It might include the cerebral hemorrhage or stroke or heart attack and subsequent paralysis of their spouse or their mother or their father something catastrophic in their personal life, something that goes way beyond any kind of partisan position that they might hold that's going to shock them open into the reality of what's really happening around them. That is the only way that these people are going to wake up. I do not see any other way, not through data, not through argument, not through politicking. Personal tragedy is going to be the only way for these people to start to realize that what's happening to them, what's happening to their friends, their family, their country, is truly destructive and sick. That is depressing, uh, but I do agree, and many do. And I think that the, uh, I said to uh, Dr. Piers Robinson in, um, in about three, no, two months ago would have been, six weeks ago, we're talking about, is it a train coming towards you? And uh, that was his second interview. First one, he said, I'm not too sure if it's a train or the light at the tunnel. Next time I said to him, do you think it's a train coming towards you? And he says, yes, it is, but I'm hoping it will be derailed. Um, I think now the train has reached the platform and opens up a, a very scary scenario for the rest of the world in the next couple of years. Uh, if somebody wants to find out more about what you do, uh, how would they do that? Well, first of all, I did publish a book recently called United States of Fear, which is available in hardcover as well as electronic version on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. I also participate in a podcast with Dr. Jeff Barkey, which is called Informed Dissent. It's on Apple Podcast, Roku, Spotify, all of the big ones. And it's also available through our website, informeddissentmedia.com. And then finally, this should be coming out in the next day if it hasn't already happened. I have created uh, and generated my own website where all of my writings will be posted and links to my book for sale will be available, which is called dissidentmd.com. Dissidentmd.com. There's some great material there. I mean, wonderful to have a margarita in one hand and a 
and a pen taking notes in the other hand, but I'll have to have a one here and you'll have to have one in Santa Monica. I know some great bars there. Baja Cantina is one of those. It's a, a place where the meeting of the mindless meet. So, uh, but it's a nice place to, <laughs> nice place to go. Uh, Doc, I know it well. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, I mean, wonderful place. They used to call it my second office. And I disagreed. <laughs> it was my first office. Dr. Mark right, McDonald, thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Tanya de Jong AM is a trailblazing Australian soprano, global speaker, award-winning social entrepreneur, creative innovation catalyst, and a spiritual journey woman. Tanya is one of Australia's most successful female entrepreneurs and innovators, developing six businesses and three charities over the past three decades. Tanya was appointed a member of the Order of Australia and named one of the 100 Women of Influence and the 100 Australian Most Influential Entrepreneurs. In this world of government-manufactured crises, there's a very real crisis in mental health. The crisis escalated during COVID-19. One of Tanya's charities, Mind Medicine Australia, is involved in treating mental illness. Tanya also works with marginalised individuals and communities to build supportive networks through the acclaimed With One Voice Choir social inclusion programs. Tanya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Look, there's some shocking figures here in Australia and overseas of a mental illness epidemic. Can you tell us the idea of the scale of this problem? Absolutely, Mike. Uh, we have a mental health emergency that's accelerating each day. Pre-COVID, uh, our mental health statistics were the second worst in the world, only ahead of Iceland. And pre-COVID, we had one in five Australians with a mental illness, one in eight Australians on antidepressants, including one in four older adults and children as young as four being prescribed antidepressants, which is obviously a travesty to a young child with a developing brain. But through this pandemic, our mental health crisis has really spiralled out of control. And recently there was an article in The Australian based on some research which was suggesting that four out of five Australians say their mental health has deteriorated through this pandemic. And we're seeing further spikes and, and further increases in the use of antidepressants and other uh, pharmacotherapy, you know, drugs for mental illness. We're also seeing this huge and really tragic uh, mental illness epidemic in young people. So we're seeing a huge amount of increasing suicides and suicidal ideation in the young and also huge increases in self-harm. And this is deeply concerning and we simply don't have the tools to get these people well and out of the system. And even pre-COVID, um, you know, practitioners did not have the tools to get people well. There's been no innovation in treatments in this sector for over 50 years. So in the case of depression and um, anxiety and so on, the remission rates from current existing treatments like antidepressants and or psychotherapy are as low as 30 to 35 percent 
And in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder, which a lot of people are experiencing, um, and which is a, a very a sort of, uh, it's, it's an illness that is not spoken about as much as depression, but actually it's, it's quite common. And now coming out of this crisis, we're seeing a lot of people who are quite or heavily traumatized. And PTSD is very, very difficult to treat. So the remission rates for PTSD from existing treatments are as low as 5%. So effectively, we're not getting the majority of patients well and out of the system, which is why there's such an enormous backlog of, of clients who are trying to get in with psychologists and psychiatrists and other specialists, and their books are full. In some cases, their books are full for one or two years, or they've closed their books altogether. And of course, if you're a patient who's very ill or is, you know, has some suicidal ideation or something, well, you can't possibly wait for a year to get support. We're also hearing that um, a number of the helplines like Lifeline and so on are also underserviced. So um, our mental health charity Mind Medicine Australia, which is not a helpline at this stage in any case, um, is experiencing an enormous amount of calls for help every single day from people who are just desperate to find treatments that will help them and get them well and out of the system. Do you have data on how COVID-19 policies have aggravated the situation and affected those most vulnerable, mentally ill, uh, the isolated, the aged? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's an enormous amount of data that shows that um, lockdowns actually exacerbate these problems and there's plenty of um, evidence and research to that effect. And lockdowns, of course, further isolate uh, already vulnerable people who are at risk of mental illness or who, or who have mental illness. Uh, furthermore, you know, mask mandates also create further fear um, in a lot of people who are suffering um, and who are afraid of, you know, who have social anxiety and, and other issues with trusting people. Um, so there's a lot of issues that people with mental illness face around trust and um, so people, of course, then become, you know, potentially more paranoid, um, lose further trust in the system, in, in, you know, governments, in other institutions and so on as well. So, you know, what we desperately need in this community, in communities all around Australia, is for people to feel a greater sense of trust and a greater sense of hope and also to feel included in society. So policies which segregate Australians into different classes of people are extremely damaging to people's sense of trust, to people's um, sense of safety. Um, and safety is, is paramount. You know, people need to feel a sense of psychological safety. They need to feel that, um, you know, they're part of one human family. We are all brothers and sisters here. And, um, you know, we are one. Mm. And whenever any group in society is segregated or stigmatised in some way, it has always led to terrible atrocities. And even stigmatising people with a mental illness, of course, causes terrible issues. Um, and that's why it's so important for people who have any kind of mental illness to feel, 
you know, a sense of acceptance and understanding. The fact is we're all on a continuum, mm. you know. We all go through our moods and our ups and downs in life and that's normal human um, life, you know. And so to stigmatise people who have a mental illness and put them in some kind of bucket and, you know, make things even worse for them is terrible. Similarly to, you know, um, segregating people you know, between vaccinated and unvaccinated people is obviously um, a strategy that is designed to cause further heartbreak and um, further division and demonization and disconnection between people. And those things uh, will lead to further issues in our community, ranging from not only mental illnesses, but to further domestic violence to further marriage breakups mm. and um, just further isolation and loss of understanding between people, which is deeply troubling when you consider that Australia has spent an enormous amount of time on fostering diversity and inclusion, equal opportunities. You know, um, we need to actually go back to fostering greater diversity of thought, to enabling debate um, and dissent because really, you know, I'm a creative um, being and it's really when people are um, allowed to have what I like to call positive human collisions where we disagree with people and that can feel uncomfortable but that's where true creativity and innovation and solutions can emerge and we urgently need to find solutions to create greater unity and understanding in our community so that people top, stop attacking one another, that we stop having this polarised environment mm. where people feel attacked for one thing or another. You know, everyone's entitled to their beliefs, um, but we need a, an environment where people can question the status quo, where we foster curiosity, and together we can come up with collective solutions for a better future. Mm. where people feel more healthy and happy and included. And all of my work across a range of charities has been focused on how can we create more healthy, happy and inclusive communities. And we certainly can't do it by dividing and separating people. You're involved in some important organisations offering help to those suffering from the problems that we're talking about. Tell us about some of the therapies and why there is a need for alternative approaches to mental health. Uh, look, I've started three charities. The first of those is The Song Room, which brings music and arts to disadvantaged children and schools all around Australia and um, has improved the learning outcomes and mental health and well-being of, of children all over Australia, over a million children. Uh, but then my second charity, Creativity Australia, and the With One Voice program has social inclusion choir programs which bring together haves and have-nots, fortunate and less fortunate people in choirs in over 30 locations in every state and territory of Australia. And not only do we share the incredible neuroscientific benefits of singing together, but we share supper and a wish list program where people can ask for help from other members in the choir for whatever it is they need. It could be finding a friend, learning English, um, learning the internet, finding a partner, someone to go to a local cafe with or walk to the station with, 
find accommodation and so on and over 4,000 wishes have been granted uh, through these wonderful miraculous choir programs which welcome people of all faiths, ages, backgrounds, age 9 to 90, people of all abilities and uh, these are wonderful. We've helped hundreds of people get jobs, we've had marriages, though we're not a dating agency but that's a beautiful charity and then my third charity is Mind Medicine Australia which I set up with my husband in early 2019 to alleviate mental illness and suicide in our community through expanding the tools available to doctors and their patients for the treatment of a variety of mental illnesses especially focusing on at the moment depression post-traumatic stress disorder addictions and so on but expanding to other mental illnesses as well and we are focused on psychedelic assisted therapies which have been proven through over 160 current and recent trials to lead to remission rates of 60 to 80 percent in uh, patients with depression and post-traumatic stress disorder after just two to three medicinal doses with a short course of psychotherapy so effectively psychedelic assisted therapies are psilocybin assisted therapies psilocybin is a psychoactive component of magic mushrooms but used in clinical um, supervised uh, treatments and MDMA assisted therapy which is not ecstasy very important to say but which leads to remission of post-traumatic stress disorder and in a huge number of patients and both of these medicines psilocybin and MDMA are now in final stages of breakthrough therapy status in final stages of trials supervised by the Food and Drug Administration the FDA in the US and um, they're expected to be prescribable medicines um, you know over the coming couple of years which is extremely exciting and in Australia we've also um, started to see the TGA um, recently published an independent review on both these therapies and also um, are looking at rescheduling the medicines and the Australian government has also announced um, some federal grants which are for novel research in this field so this is a rapidly accelerating field it's the most exciting potential breakthrough in the treatment of mental illness for over 50 years and in the 60s psychedelic assisted therapies were also considered the next big thing uh, but unfortunately President Nixon politicized psychedelics in 1970 in his war on drugs and this was an entirely political decision it was not based on the science behind these incredible treatments but that effectively stopped research for the best part of nearly 50 years mm. and so now we're seeing this incredible renaissance in this field and it's highly prospective with a range of for-profit and not-for-profit companies burgeoning all over the world and um, I really encourage people to go to our website, mindmedicineaustralia.org, we're a charity, to learn more. We've got an amazing learn section and it really is wonderful when you start to see the amount of people who are starting to get well out of the system leading happy, healthy lives. Mm. That's what we really need to see in this community is people get, being given hope and a chance to get well 
and mental illness does not have to be a life sentence. These are curative medicines. They're not palliative. They're just not, not about just treating conditions or numbing people out. They're about getting people well. And everyone deserves that chance. Dr. Simon Longstaff, who's on our board and the head of the Ethics Centre, says it's unethical for these treatments not to be made available in medically controlled environments in Australia for those who are suffering. And this is personal for every one of us, Mike. Mm. You know, if it's not us, it's someone who's close to us who's suffering because even pre-COVID, it was estimated that one in two of us would experience a mental illness in our lifetime. But one more thing, Tanya, just quickly, um, just your views on child vaccinations. I mean, you're in the, you're living the dream. Um, Dan Andrews is your fearless leader. Uh, um, but uh, he's pushing these vaccinations as other governments around the world for kiddies five years and over. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously that is deeply concerning. Uh, just as I mentioned earlier, you know, giving children antidepressants, um, you know, from I mean, I, I am aware and we've heard of many cases of young children being prescribed antidepressants, as I mentioned earlier, as young as four years old. And these, these are medicines which have long-term safety data and um, but still have masses of side effects and it's been well recognised by, you know, most leading psychiatrists and, and other doctors that it's completely inappropriate to give children uh, with developing brains these sorts of medications and these have long-term safety data. In the case of um, giving 5 to 11-year-olds injections which haven't actually got that long-term safety data, that's deeply concerning and every parent and teacher should be um, very, very concerned and protecting children from anything mm. that is not properly tested and trialled. And at the end of the day, there's been no cases of children dying uh, from these viruses and um, their survival rates from these viruses are you know, extremely good, as is the case for pretty much anyone, you know, under the age mm. of 80 years old. Mm. And we need to do everything we can to protect children from potential side effects of any medications um, and give them the chance to, to lead healthy and happy lives as well without potentially suffering a range of adverse events. And we only need to, to look at the adverse events that are occurring um, from the vaccines that are on the TGA's um, adverse events reports to understand how many adults are experiencing a range of severe adverse events and deaths and seeing how many young athletes are being uh, are really falling on the tracks and, and you know, and all over the place. It's, it's so worrying and every single one of us needs to speak out because any medicine that doesn't have proper safety data is a concern. And, you know, when you compare um, the medicines that I've been talking about, psychedelic medicines, I mean, these are plant medicines that have been with humanity since the beginning of human civilizations. In fact, many historians and anthropologists postulate that these medicines have been around before human beings, and yet 
they're still not um, prescribable or legal medicines, and yet they've been through um, hundreds of thousands and millions of people have used them over the ages. Mm. In Indigenous cultures, they're legal. In the Netherlands, they're legal. Hundreds of thousands of patients have been through trials with them, both in the 50s and 60s and now, and yet they're still not legal, and yet we're seeing injections um, which have actually gone through very short phases of trials becoming um, available and um, really pushed on to the public without proper safety data. So it seems like there's always different rules for different things. Really similar to what happened back in 1970 when Nixon had his war on drugs, there was nothing wrong with psychedelic-assisted therapies. They were just stigmatised mm. because he was trying to conscript people into the Vietnam War movement um, and in the process criminalised the use of these medicines. And that has led to this lost 50 years where if these medicines had have been available and further researched and implemented and used over the past 50 years, well, the world would have been a very different place today. Mm. So we have to be very, very careful when anything is politicised and people keep talking about everything being based on science but in actual fact um, there is no long-term safety data so we really need to look at that mm. because the science isn't there. Yep, the uh, civilization has now morphed into let's sacrifice our children and save the adults pretty scary uh, and mm -hmm. by the way we should the, never we should never ever no it's, do that it's vile uh, impulsive and, and very evil yeah uh tanya thank you very much just one last thing the um the 60s uh they said those that <laughs> were in the 60s and can remember the 60s weren't really in the 60s so, so the um and <laughs> because psychedelics I mean you got some great music the doors the beatles and all those groups so um and we're still listening to those, wondering what Absolutely. the 60s, wondering what the 60s were really like. Uh, Tanya, thank you very much. Lucy in the sky with diamonds. That's right. I mean, the Doors, <laughs> Roadhouse Blues. See, but now we're talking about some stuff that I really love, uh, and and play it loud. Uh, well, you'll have to put Lucy in the sky with diamonds on this interview. That would be fun. No, I actually have. To, I better check on the licensing first of all, because I, I may need diamonds to pay for those fees. <laughs> Tanya, thank Maybe, you. yes, true. Yeah, great chatting. Uh, do it again too soon. Thank you very much. Thank you.